0: Welcome back to the Media Sport podcast series. Available on SoundCloud and iTunes, this series features interviews with a range of established and emerging scholars from around the world whose research deals critically with developments in sports media, digital communications and mobile media. A big thanks to those who have offered their feedback on the first five episodes and I hope you continue to enjoy the forthcoming discussions. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins from the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Today I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina in the US, attending the 8th Summit on Communication and Sport, which is the annual conference of the International Association for Communication and Sport. And I'm lucky enough to be sitting with Lawrence Wenner, a figure whose research and writing is very well known to many listeners. Lawrence is the Vonderer Professor of Communication and Ethics in the College of Fine Arts and the School of Film and Television at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. A leading international figure in the study of sports media for many years is the author of over 100 articles and book chapters as well as his agenda-setting books including Media, Sports and Society, Critical Approaches to Television, Media, Sport, Sport, Beer and Gender, Promotional Culture and Contemporary Social Life and his latest, Fallen Sports Heroes, Media and Celebrity Culture published by Peter Lang in 2013. He's also the editor of Not one, but two major journals, Communication and Sport, and the International Review for the Sociology of Sport. On a personal note, I feel really fortunate to be chatting with a figure whose scholarship I've been reading since I was an undergraduate, and his work I have read and admired ever since. Larry, thanks for taking my time out to speak to the Media Sport podcast. Nice to be with you, Brad. Um, Let's start with a question largely to satisfy my curiosity about titled chairs. Who or was is the Wunderer... In the Vondra chair in communication and ethics.
1: Well, I've never had the privilege of uh, of meeting uh, the Vondra, but I understand it's a family. Um, it's uh, a family that uh, had some money, had some good fortunes. They were in the uh, uh, they ran uh, uh, markets, and they uh, had a chain of markets uh, still up under the brand Vons Markets and. Los Angeles, and uh, uh, I guess uh, they uh, sold out to uh, Safeway, which is one of our very big uh, monolithic chains uh, in the U.S., and uh, they have endowed uh, uh, my uh, position at Loyola Marymount. Uh, it's uh, one of, uh, I think, six uh, university-level ethics chairs in different areas uh, of ethics, and uh, I guess for some reason uh, uh, they thought that uh, there was some need for uh, media ethics, which uh, I usually get the joke uh, when I uh, tell people uh, the title of my position uh, and uh, say I uh, teach in the area of media ethics, usually I get the response, I didn't know there were any.
0: You graduated from the University of Iowa in the late 1970s. That's yeah?
1: right. I got my doctoral degree at the University of Iowa. Um, uh, I'm from uh, uh, Los Angeles. I grew up in Los Angeles in the shadow of Hollywood with a, uh, and played tennis uh, a good deal, play a little bit of basketball. Uh played tennis with a lot of out-of-work uh, 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 actors and uh, media uh, uh, writers and technical people and the like. They could play a lot of tennis because uh, one of the uh, uh, maybe unknown or little publicized uh, uh, knowledges of uh, the media industry is the people that work in television and film and entertainment are almost always perpetually between jobs. They're never unemployed, of -hmm. course, uh, but they're perpetually between jobs, and they almost never know when that next job's going to come around. And uh, so they played a lot of tennis. This was on the public courts. Um, So it was really an odd thing for someone growing up. uh, I majored as an undergraduate in what was called... uh, radio television film uh, before they gave these departments something more glorious uh, in terms of a title. And uh, I I, I pretty well decided uh, I didn't want to uh, go into the media industry uh, professionally, having done a a few stints uh, uh, in the the, uh, uh, record business, a little bit with television, a little bit of dinking around with radio. Uh, I guess I made... uh, the decision that I didn't want to go to work quite right away and I was more comfortable being the loyal opposition, uh, trying to make media a little bit better Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, so I looked around and uh, uh, at that time the University of Iowa, as odd as it may sound, a very good university, uh, had the uh, number one rated doctoral program in the country and in uh, what uh, now we think of as media studies.
0: Okay. And did you start, you know, in sport, or did you move, i say, popular Mm -hmm. culture? No, there was
1: no sport. Um, There was no sport whatsoever, and frankly, there was no legitimacy to studying popular culture. Mm. Uh, I started graduate school in 1974, and... uh, Uh, what we think of today largely as media studies was mass communication research Mm -hmm. at that moment. And what that meant was that uh, you were uh, being trained to study media effects, largely political effects or effects on children, socialization, that kind of thing. Uh, And I was trained uh, very much as an empirical social scientist. I did a lot of survey research early in my career. Mm. Um, But uh, the education I had at Iowa also uh, uh, demanded some exposure to uh, rhetorical criticism, um, which was about as close as you could get to cultural criticism in the field of communication at that moment. Um, because uh, um, the uh, early 70s, even to late 70s in the U.S., uh, cultural studies, while it was brewing in the U.K., had not yet really arrived. And uh, we really only saw the very first television criticism, um, scholarly works, Uh, in approximately the mid-1970s with Horace Newcomb's work Mm. and uh, I was quite influenced by that. Uh, um, I was also exposed to some of that kind of stuff uh, at that time and uh, in a class that probably I had somewhere around 1975 or six uh, I was exposed to an article uh, by Michael Real uh, who uh, wrote an article called The Super Bowl Mythic Spectacle. It was a remarkably short article and uh, it didn't do any of those kinds of social science things that we would expect. Uh, Mike was a, uh, uh, a student uh, of uh, uh, a guy, uh, uh, James Carey, at Illinois and uh, Jim Carey uh, was exposed to a cultural model uh, and a very much a proponent of a historically driven cultural model. And it came out in Mike's uh, Mike's work, and uh, uh, I, I thought that was quite amazing that it was a different kind of work, and mm. it was the first thing that I had ever seen, and I actually went back and looked at the literature uh, uh, on media and sport. Uh, after that, and as I got on to it, uh, uh, there wasn't much of anything ever written uh, on sport, and, and frankly, at that point, there wasn't very much written in the scholarly marketplace on the popular. Yeah. Uh, as I'm fond of saying, the popular was not yet popular. Uh, mass, mass communication research was about serious stuff, about serious effects, agenda setting, about uh, uh, about socialization, about opinion change, uh, um, and um, uh, so things like the popular sport included were, boy, uh, considered as frivolous uh, because really we've had, uh, the situation I was in, now it's not where media studies is sometimes situated because in uh, UK Commonwealth countries often uh, its uh, home base had been sociology uh, out of media sociology. But in the US we did have this field called communication. It was called speech communication. Uh, I suppose once upon a time that it was a derivative of English uh but uh, you know it was about performance and then we got into this era of communication science and persuasion mm-hmm. and we had a field that was uh, oh in a way sort of a second-rate field that was fighting for legitimacy in academia and one of the ways i think they did that was to take on serious questions and to use serious methods, methods that looked like, lo and behold, they were sophisticated empirical tools. Mm -hmm. So all of this, to some degree, speaks to a disciplinary inferiority complex that they were working through, through tackling these serious questions with serious methods and pushing, not, not pushing out, but it just didn't have a place at the table at that time. And it took a while. Uh, I did a, 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 a first book on media gratifications research. I was an audience researcher, but uh, a little against the grain. And I mean, it doesn't seem like it, maybe, but uh, uh, the notion of the active audience had not even uh, uh, firmly, uh, uh, was not firmly in place. We were looking at effects and assuming, you know, hypodermic needle mm-hmm we would say, well, it's not a hypodermic needle, but basically the research basically assumed it. Mm -hmm. So I began to look at audience activity and uh, uh, really the only avenue uh, to begin to look at that because we didn't have cultural studies and that kind of thing was uses and gratifications, Mm -hmm. active audience that, you know, you can push back. So that's how I got going with the first book and did that. I did that with... uh, uh, Carl Eric Rosengren, who was uh, uh, a Swedish scholar, uh, and Phil Palmgreen at University of Kentucky. And then once I got out of that, I felt like at a certain point I had done as much as I could do with gratifications research, and uh, um, I began, uh, well, I, I, I moved from research universities where they had doctoral students, and if uh, you needed doctoral students to do empirical research, you needed research teams, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, people to do menial tasks. And I moved uh, to Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, which is small, uh, fairly small. They always think of themselves as mid-sized, uh, but it was even smaller then. Um, in what became a school of film and television, and. Uh, there wasn't really a a scholarly graduate program, and uh, so uh, I did some empirical research for a while with uh, uh, Walter Gantz uh, and some other people uh, uh, while I was there, but ultimately, end of the day, uh, it just didn't seem feasible to me uh, to continue doing uh, empirical research. I, I didn't reject it. I still think it would do us some good sometimes to get some numbers to prove some of our critical assertions, uh, but uh, I also was reacting uh, to having published a number of uh, uh, empirical articles uh, that uh, it seemed like it was uh, the uh, editors were often uh, on my case about going too far with my discussion and my conclusion about what those empirical results actually meant. In other words, I was being too critical uh, or too analytical or taking it too far. So I guess, end of the day, I had some critical tendencies, and basically, uh, uh, in the uh, uh, mid 80s, began to move more and more into television criticism and sports centered work.
0: Why sports then? Uh-
1: well, because I grew up, uh, I sort of joke about it. My father would uh, watch uh, uh, any uh, ball that was moving on a television screen. We didn't much go to the stadium, but he would watch anything. And So I grew up watching all the, the regular suspects in the United States, uh, professional football. And we were in Los Angeles at the time uh, when uh, UCLA had remarkably great Um, college basketball teams with uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, you know, it was, uh, you know, just a wonderful uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, time and uh, uh, Los Angeles had two major league baseball teams and uh, uh, had a football team, which it no longer has, but uh, we hear promises that maybe two or three may be showing up on the doorstep shortly Los Angeles, uh, for those of you who may not know, was the second largest media market in the United States, and for rather odd, maybe unexplainable reasons, hasn't had a uh, an NFL professional football team in the Los Angeles market uh, for almost twenty years.
0: It's, it is anomalous. Yeah,
1: it's an anomaly, and uh, uh, probably a lost economic opportunity.
0: Okay. And I, I mean, if we're talking roughly around the mid-'80s, I, mean, I mean, reflections on how the study of sports media has developed since and the sorts of changes you've observed, be it either for the better or for the worse, I suppose. Well, it's a lot better in that, uh, you know,
1: you don't get... Uh, when I started with it, it was very, very difficult to get uh, sports-centred uh, papers on sport communication uh, into uh, communication conferences uh, here in the U.S. with the National Communication Association, International Communication Association, and the like. And ironically, maybe because of that, um, I had written a piece uh, on the Super Bowl, uh, actually on the Super Bowl pregame show. Mm. Um, I I began to come to the conclusion that... uh, Uh, studying uh, media and sport or sport communication was not about studying the game Mm. Uh, it was uh, about studying the frame for the game and you know over the course of time I came up with a a throwaway phrase that the frame is more important than the game and uh, uh, to my mind uh, that's really really true in understanding the, the cultural and mediated impact uh, of sport on, 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 broader cultural logics. Mm. And, uh, people were beginning to do that kind of work. Uh, uh, a former student of, uh, mine while I was at Iowa, Leah Vanderburg, with, uh, her husband, Nick Trujillo, uh, actually began to write, uh, some rhetorical analyses of baseball. And, uh, uh of course, Jennings Bryant was, uh, working in a, uh, an experimental model, but with a program of research with Dolph Zillman that I was familiar with in the United States. Um, We saw some little, I don't know, snippets of interest in the sociology of sport community. But uh, really, apart from Mike Reel and uh, uh, Jennings Bryant, uh, no one was really uh, taking... Uh, sports seriously. Uh, Mike was more interested in, in cultural issues, uh, like uh, he looked at the Olympics. He looked at Disneyland. Uh, he looked at a lot of things in a in a book that was very well received called Mass Mediated Culture, mm-hmm. uh, very influential and, uh, at that time, and and really uh, helped usher in. And it took a while, really. Uh, Cultural studies was blooming in the, in the UK in the 80s, but it was just sort of brewing a little bit in the United States at that point in time. So it was... It was it, oceans actually mattered more back then, uh, intellectually.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say that, because I'm um, coming from a country where uh, I think probably the leading figures in the study of sport, you know, were moved to Australia from the UK and Canada and places like that. So, I mean, yeah, the oceans... Well,
1: actually, one of the things that really propelled uh, cultural studies in the United States was that John Fisk moved to Wisconsin. Yeah. And, you know, that that voice began to be a more local voice. Mm. And uh, Larry Grossberg... uh, Took hold at uh, at Illinois with his uh, his training out of Birmingham, and uh, but that took time. That took mm-hmm. time.
0: Okay, I mean it was, it's interesting you mentioned Nick Trujillo earlier. I mean his meeting of Nolan Ryan was incredibly important to mm-hmm. me when I was fra- you know, coming to yeah. the template for my PhD. Interestingly enough. Yep.
1: Yeah. No, Nick, Nick, and uh, Leah uh, uh, and I were very good long term
0: long term friends. Mm. And you've coined the term um, sports dirt. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, I've, yeah. I, it's a term I really like, and it actually works really well in classrooms. Yeah. For, so just you know, for those who aren't perhaps as familiar, just, what what are you getting at with that term?
1: Well, I've had a lot of complaints over the term uh, <laughs> over the years, uh, and uh, people say it's slippery, and we don't know what you mean. Uh, it it actually is a a, a, a well seated a theoretical concept uh, uh, linkable to the cultural anthropologist and linguist Mary Douglas. Mm. And uh, she was looking at uh, taboo and uh, pollution. And uh, I began to uh, uh, associate it with dirt uh, with the realization that we use Uh, Sport in so many ways to uh, legitimize doing things, to sell things, Mm -hmm. um, to celebrate things, to use logics of sport. In the U.S., probably elsewhere, uh, uh, we tend to use uh, uh, horse race and uh, boxing match uh, uh, language to explain political contests. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a lens through which we interpret other things that are not sport, so the sport logic uh, ends up being used broadly in culture, and the analogy um, of sport to these other places is not necessarily a sensible one. Mm-hmm. So uh, the whole notion of dirt, as Mary Douglas has put it, is dirt is matter out of place. So. Uh, when it crosses borders from one domain maybe a cultural domain to another uh, there's a risk of uh, of pollution there's a, what would you call it bleed uh, in logic and um, as Douglas has put it and some other uh, scholars that picked up on that in the oh 70s and 80s uh, primarily uh... Uh, UK scholars, uh, uh, what's the guy's name, uh, uh, say uh, Mansenberger uh, uh, in Germany, but it was somewhat obscure, you know, and it wasn't really picked up with regard to communication, but it made perfect sense because mm-hmm. it's the transference of meaning. And uh, what I liked about the term was that uh, it. Uh, was evocative uh, that that transfer of meaning held power and, and, and could be dirty, could be devious. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, uh, dirt is a, a funny thing. Uh, uh, when, uh, you know, uh, we think of it as, uh, as something, when we finally see the dirt in our houses, we kind of go well, I like this and, and, and uh, you know, uh, brush it away because it doesn't belong there. So I've been trying to work through uh, that lens of seeing when something actually counts as dirt and shouldn't be there. I mean, we can put it there, we can make a cultural decision to do so, but it's a matter out of place, it's a strategic thing. And I think merchandisers like Budweiser and... Car manufacturers, and they—they they, they are basically in the business of the strategic goose of sports dirt to sell products that don't necessarily have anything to do with sport.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I think that's—you uh, know—there's other articulations uh, uh, of uh, that kind of transference of meaning and in, uh, in cultural studies, but uh, I don't know. For me, it—it uh, it sort of resonated. Uh, And I can understand how people would uh, say that it's, uh, uh, gee, it's not altogether clear. Who gets to decide what's dirt? Well, you know, I guess my answer would always be that, well, I guess that's the critic's job, isn't it? Mm -hmm. To make that determination, to make that assessment, and to explain one's assessment about uh, uh, why something may be uh, uh, dirty or out of place. We won't even, the connotation wasn't even meant to be uh, bad, uh, uh, but 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 rather that dirt was matter out of place, and then you can make the judgment about whether it's appropriate or not, and that's how I got it kind of ultimately entangled with uh, ethical criticism, which also was not in fashion, um, mm. and uh, I got a little tired of. Uh, uh, a, uh, a period of uh, critical research in the, in the humanities and social sciences where, uh, and John Fisk actually was uh, uh, a little instrumental in this, that, uh, uh, you know, the ultimate polysemy of uh, meaning, your meaning is just as good as mine, and, you know, and uh, we can read it different ways and we can take power over it, I just didn't buy that, ultimately. Uh, I think, yes, we can. We can push back a little bit. But ultimately, uh, uh, the message and the intent uh, moves through us because, uh, on average, messages are uh, 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 received as opposed to be resisted. Cause it takes a lot of work to resist messages.
0: absolutely,
1: And it puts you in a deviant position socially in your interactions with other people if you can't give the givens of the assertions of media uh, 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 credibility, then you've got to be pushing back. And people in their daily lives, I don't believe, you know, m- make it uh, a, a cause celebra that uh, 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 to be pushing back because, you know, being deviant has risk, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes thinking. Absolutely, And we have different tolerances for it, too. You know, uh, some people are compulsive neatniks about the cleanliness of their house. And some people let the dirt pile up for a while, doesn't bother them much. So, you know, I guess it's a a metaphoric uh, 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 term. Uh, I think its main value probably is that it's a a heuristic, and it makes us look for those things that don't belong somewhere Mm -hmm. that we, we... we kind of question, well, what is that doing there? That really doesn't, if we were to be rational about it, make much sense. Well, how did we get to the point that this seems sensible over there?
0: Mm. Interesting. Now, your latest book, Fallen Sports Heroes, Media and Celebrity Cultures, you're sort of looking at the narrative arc of sports heroes rise and fall. (laughs) I I suppose... Why is that important? Might be the, the simplest way of putting this. Well,
1: uh, I think actually I'm thinking about it even more broadly. But uh, uh, looked at a couple things. Uh, uh, I've, I've been I've had this uh, endowed chair in communication ethics for a while, so I'm I'm actually uh, compelled to look at that. And I was never an ethicist, and i never much of a prude actually uh, either in terms of. Uh, but but I, I found ethical. Uh, dynamics, ethical assertions, uh, the public uh, drawing of lines about moral fissures, uh, 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 moral panics and the like, really very interesting. And uh, um, a lot of this, uh, having to do with the narrative of sport and uh, the use of dirt and all this kind of stuff, uh, goes back to a really basic thing for me, and uh, that's uh, George Gerbner's uh, uh, aphorism. George Gerbner was the uh, longtime dean of the uh, Annenberg School uh, for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania and and an amazingly long-term editor of the Journal of Communication. And George had this... uh, a wonderful phrase, and it was just so simple, and I use it with my students uh, uh, because it sinks into their souls, and that is that those people who tell most of the stories most of the time control a culture. So you look at who's telling the stories about dirt, who's telling the stories most of the time uh, about sport, and, uh, and take a look at, well, why are they telling those stories? Why are they telling those stories that way? Why those stories, as opposed to some other stories that could be ter- as fascinating or maybe arguably more important, but they get to tell them? Mm. And uh, with regard to the fallen sport heroes, I, I thought that arc was just so remarkably uh, uh, interesting to look at is that the um, uh, sport media, sport journalists, uh, sport public relations people all have a vested interest uh, uh, because, you know, let's be honest about it. The sports media is, on one hand, sports broadcasters who are paid by the owners of the rights to broadcast these things. They're not going to make this look like crappy product. They're going to make it look exciting and important and positive and great and fantastic. And the sports journalists are, interestingly, in the same thing. There's a reason, the same boat, because, uh, yes, it is a bit of a toy department uh, because sports journalists usually join the ranks of the sports department because they like sports, They're enthusiasts for it. They think it's important. People are interested in it. It has good stories. But at the end of the day, if a sport journalist, a reporter at a newspaper, a reporter at a broadcast news organization, is ultimately regularly critical of sport, lifts the hood, uh, lifts the bonnet, right, Uh, and looks under, why, why is it as it is, Uh, they're going to encounter resistance uh, 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 to their stories but most importantly uh, their lifeline uh, risks being cut because the only thing that uh, uh, the sports reporter uh, at this point has to offer is inside stuff Mm -hmm. and if you don't have access you can't get that inside stuff That is, you know because basically sports reporting is not so much well we know who won the game you know you can look it up on your phone or something uh but it's you know who said what what did they make of it all of this kind of stuff and if you don't have access you don't have a job so if you are uh perpetually um critical, analytical, actually look at the structural uh, forces at play uh, in the sport industry as a sport reporter, you're not going to have a job. It's not um, surprising that when things go wrong in sport, usually the reporting um, gets assigned to a regular news reporter, not a sports beat reporter because that person doesn't have to live with a sporting organization uh, on a daily basis and on an ongoing basis. Um, so I began to look at, well, in a way, the sports media this, and the uh, uh, sport organizations have a system in place basically for making these athletes, who are very unidimensional people, uh, they're, they're very good at one thing, uh, 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 physical performance uh, uh, and uh, making them into broad-based heroes to rounding them out and to putting them in positions to be voices for this or that, to endorse that product, to be attractive to their fans. So it's building, it's the systematic building up of the hero. And then when that athlete, star athlete, might even be a sports reporter or a newscaster, could be a coach, someone in the, in that sporting world does something wrong, you know, uh, gets found in bed with a transvestite uh, uh, prostitute or uh, uh, gets pulled over uh, with uh, too many firearms or uh, uh, gets in a 2 a.m. fight or, you know, sleeping with the the coach's wife, all these things have happened, of course. Uh, uh, Then uh, we see a different kind of thing happen, and that is that uh, uh, the uh, sports media, the sport organizations, uh, usually don't spend a lot of time defending that athlete. Uh, uh, um, There are exceptions to that. But usually what happens is there's a piling on of uh, uh, that that person who uh, uh, did something wrong uh, it was a bad apple. Um, it wasn't uh, the sporting system that uh, perhaps encouraged that or the socialization into be becoming an elite athlete that has facilitated that or that lack of uh, holistic personal development, unidimensional personal development which which is is really necessary for the development uh, uh, of uh, elite athletes, uh, that they're not complicit in that. So what happens is, instead of fixing the system, we throw out the bad apple. Hmm. And uh, so I was interested in that whole enterprise uh, and uh, was also interested uh, in, well, where are those moral lines drawn? You know, when, when an infraction happens, well, how is that explained? You know, okay, explain the moral offense, because you have to explain it. So I wanted to see uh, how the media dealt with that in different cases. Um, and uh, and then also follow, because some of these people were important enough, uh, uh, a sportcaster like uh, Marv Alpert, uh, uh, a, a star quarterback uh uh that uh, got caught for uh, you know dog fighting michael vick uh was was good enough to be rehabilitated mm-hmm. and, uh, and and what we found was the the course of this you know building back this uh, uh, nature of the nature of the apology for the moral offense Kind of wanted to get a, a a look at the moral climate and handling of all of this because we saw it a little bit as a lens about you know what was permissible in public mm. what was permissible of our heroes w- w- that we generally don't want tarnished and I started with the ath- with the athletes and the the sports setting uh, because uh, began to look around. I read a book, uh, I've forgotten the name of uh, the uh, authors, but it was called something like Heroes and, uh, you know, why we need them and how we use them or something like that. Uh, Actually, a terrific uh, uh, treatment by social psychologists. And one of the the, uh, realizations is that uh, uh, in the present uh, cultural space, Uh, We really don't have many heroes uh, who aren't uh, uh, athletes or entertainers. Uh, You know, uh, so we've really got, you know, heroes, role models, uh, that are in the performance business, not in the action business. And the old definition of heroes, of course, was that they're uh, uh known for what they have uh what they've done mm. uh, because of noble deeds and and the like, not just good performance on a on a on a playing field or a good performance uh in a in a film playing a character uh, for which uh, uh, words were written for you mm. you know a, a real hero uh, acts uh, on his or her own uh uh says. His or her own words uh, takes his or her own lumps yeah. <laughs> and the like. Um, so it seemed to me we were, you know, we, we, with using the athlete and the sport example, we were also uh, illuminating a good deal about the nature of uh, the modern hero and basically the fusion of the hero into celebrity.
0: Okay. I mean, what it is, does nicely as a collection is that you know it takes sport and then speaks to that broader social and cultural world in a you know a consistently critical fashion, you know, around notions of justice and fairness and what matters and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look across, you know, and I realise it's a very disparate field in a lot of ways, but when you look across, say, sports communication and the study of sports media at this point, I mean, what are the things we should be paying attention to in your mind? Well,
1: one's so damn obvious, but we don't see it, and many people do, but we don't honestly. Uh, um, we were just at a panel on internationalization and uh, the study of communication and sport, and uh, there was one woman on the panel, and about Three-quarters of the way through the session, she made mention uh, of what was an obvious fact um, that she was the only woman on the panel. Uh, I think uh, that uh, gender is, as I put it, uh, the great divide of sport. It's also the great divide of uh, sport communication, sport media, Um Sport media basically covers men's sports. Mm. And, uh, you know, we were having discussions. Oh, soccer is the largest, you know, most, uh, it dominates the sport pages. They did an international survey of sports reporting. Well, what's not said there is that virtually all of that coverage is for men's soccer. And we have this problem here in the United States, too. We have this thing called March Madness, which is a a college basketball championship. And it's often referred to as uh, as March Madness or the uh, NCAA, which is our National Collegiate Athletic Association, uh, basketball championship. Now, when you say that to someone, or you say... uh, uh, you say soccer, you don't say soccer, you say football, first of all. Uh, but when, when, when you don't modify that, that you're talking about men's soccer or men's basketball, as in the case if we were to just, just have a conversation here in the United States with someone about the NCAA basketball championship, it would be known that we were talking about the men's game we would have to use the modifier women's basketball championship to know that's the case. We do the same thing with soccer. We do it with football. Well, women mostly don't play football. I'm talking about the U.S. kind with concussions and such, although we've got that with the, you know, in uh, in the soccer version of football, too, without the helmets, just courtesy of the ball. Uh, but... Uh, um, that process is just so amazing to me. Uh, Roland Barthes called that ex-nomination, mm-hmm. uh, that something was so powerful that it didn't have to be named. And we do that routinely with sport. You know, We're talking about sport communication. Well, what are we talking about mostly? We're talking about men's sport communication. You know, And we say, well, women are becoming fans. Yeah, sure they are. You know there was soccer, the NFL, very proud. You know, almost 50 percent of their fans, so so so-called, are women. Well, for me, at the end of the day, that doesn't uh, uh, really resolve anything, uh, because still it's women watching men on the main stages, Mm -hmm. and the bulk of the sport that is covered in the media is main stage sport. really a challenge to get uh, a male audience for many women's sports, and if they are attending to that, it'll be uh, uh, gender-typed sports, uh, such as gymnastics or... Gosh, I don't know. Uh, what do they call the uh, uh, the uh, water dancing? The couple, oh, the, syn- uh, uh, the synchronized swimming, swimming and uh, uh, and the like uh, uh, for men to attend to it. Uh, you know, something that men don't really do, and you don't have to look at it in a comparative kind of way. Uh, figure skating, maybe, and that has all kinds of gender question marks over it when men participate. Uh, um, But um, so we have women more and more attending to men's physical performances on the main stages and we applaud that because well that's good women are watching sport too but all that does is reinforce the notion that we should all be watching men on the main cultural stages that matter and compounded by that is Really difficult to get men to be fans and supporters of women's elite athletics, Um, but it's even difficult to get women to be supporters of women's elite athletics. Now, the sole exception with men is if their daughters are competing, they will be, and I think that explains to some degree the rise of. uh, of uh, soccer uh, in the U.S. as a participation sport for uh, for women in particular, it became a, an outlet. It became a, an avenue for intercollegiate athletics to balance their numbers so that they could come into conformance with Title IX, which is basically a gender equity uh, provision uh, that pertains uh, not only to uh, uh, intercollegiate athletics, but uh, all federal funding for universities in the United States. Uh, education more broadly, I think, it pertains more more than just to uh, higher education.
0: Yeah, it's funny you say that because one of my, I mean, looking at online media and mobile media and things like this, it was always, the constant message was that it was going to offer all this exposure to otherwise ignored sports. And the picture that's really emerged is that that allows people to consume ever more of the same sports that they've always been watching. So, yeah. you know, more football. More well,
1: and, it become, and also the, the, the mobile and the digital uh, space, uh, I think, allows for an expansion of the echo chamber uh, around those things that are already big. I mean, it kind of—it's interesting. You know, we were a remarkable time in our uh, our, our media space. We're, we're basically in a in an era of increased fragmentation. Uh, so um, specialized, you know, mass. That's why we stopped calling it mass communication because it's you know it, it isn't anymore. That's true. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, so, um, sport, though, I think still uh, strives to be mass. When we look at FIFA, we look at the Olympics, we look at the Super Bowl in the U.S. Yeah, that's what's left of mass. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it doesn't surprise me uh, that uh, your uh, observation about the digital space—that uh, it's doing as much to enlarge, um, uh, I guess, those sports that are already supported in mass and privileged. Uh, uh, but it does, you know, to, to, to say uh, because of the economics of it, I think it does open up the door to uh, uh, more minor, more segmented uh, uh, sports, and uh, it allows, uh, because uh, digital media crosses borders so much uh, easier, uh, for a critical mass across uh, the world uh, to form around an endeavor, mm. um, to find a market, I guess, and, you know, in those economic terms. But get back to your 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 larger question. Well, what what are we doing uh, well and not? Uh, I think it still holds uh, the observation I've made a a number of times over: is that uh, the vast bulk of scholarly work on uh, mediated sport is about content. It's about criticizing content, counting content, uh, and um, often in some detachment and sometimes with remarkable sophistication. Uh, But why is that? You know, why is that? And the, the answer is that we do the easy stuff first. The content's there. You can grab it. You can analyze it. You can critique it. You can look at it forever. Really hard, you know, communication is often divided in a, you know, the old days, a very simple model, but the model still sort of holds Sender, message, receiver, right? Um, Institution, creator, uh, content, text, receiver, audience, whatever you want to call that kind of stuff. So it's really three things. And then there's feedback and all that kind of stuff, but it's really those three things. And out of those three things, we've done a remarkably poor job studying the institutions of mediated sport. Why? Because it's harder, difficult to get access. You know, universities can be in far-flung places, which may not be media centers. You know, um, hard to do observational research over a period of time. It's complex. You've got to get access. You've got to get permissions. And audience research, frankly, apart from uh, what I call that kind of research that uh, goes on... uh, uh, they they call it euphemistically the ethnographic impulse. And why do they call it ethnographic impulse? Because it's not even ethnography. It's just kind of, you know, who you bumped into and let's, you know, talk to ten people. Uh, and you're not going to make meaningful generalizations from that kind of thing uh, at the end of the day. And doing well-sampled, generalizable audience research is increasingly difficult Mm -hmm. you think well gee it should be easier you know do it on the internet well that's not random sampling and the whole thing about statistical inference is based on the assumption of random sampling so we are in really an interesting predicament and it's expensive Mm -hmm. a good audience research is expensive Uh, doing uh, textual analysis, doing content, that's cheap. So so we're missing, you know, the proportions are not well uh, in uh, media and sport research, and uh, you know, to boot we need to be looking at more than one of those three components in most of our studies, and most of our studies are still in one of those three silos. Mm. And they don't connect it, as Stuart Hall would say would be highly desirable.
0: So, a way of finishing, you're the editor of Communication and Sport, which gives you a sort of unique perspective. I mean, what's the story behind... I mean, we're, we're in Charlotte, partly yeah. related to that journal. What's the story behind the journal and, and what it's trying to do? Well, the
1: journal uh, was uh, actually proposed to uh, Sage Publications in about 2004, 2005, and uh, they were interested in it, uh, but I think maybe uh, we didn't have a a fully functioning publication editor at the time. uh, And the general response I got was, well, we're looking at it, we're evaluating it. Uh, We think it may not be quite ready, uh, but I never heard a decision. And uh, about it, uh, and then um, this this organization in the summit uh, had uh, begun to uh, uh, begin, begun to show up. We hadn't had the organization, but we knew we needed an organizational formation. And I uh, had heard uh, uh, through the grapevine that uh, Sage was uh, had received another uh, uh, proposal for a journal. And uh, uh, I uh, uh, I just asked for the courtesy for them to resolve mine, which had never been resolved. And uh, the notion uh, was for a Journal of Communication and Sport. Uh, there were other journals that started after I put that first proposal forward. The Journal of Sport Media, which is associated with the University of uh, Nebraska Press, and the International uh, Journal uh, of Sport Communication, which uh, uh, is published by Human Kinetics, um, but we thought we could put forward um, a journal that was differentiated. Journal of Sport Media was focused primarily on sport journalism. Uh, the International uh, Journal uh, of Sport Communication was seated in uh, sport management. Uh, both journals were open to uh, uh, more broadly uh, conceptualized uh, manuscript submissions, but we wanted to be able to have the first journal that was truly seated in the communication discipline, in media studies, um, but that was broad and that took sport seriously. And we decided to call it Communication and Sport rather than Media and Sport because we wanted to be uh, inclusive of uh, other traditions in communication that were communication coming out of interpersonal, group, organizational communication, leadership, Uh, the whole study of uh, rhetoric uh, is sort of a little bit in both traditions, that's more of a speech communication tradition, but it also obviously comes into play because most of the rhetoric we hear about sport is mediated. Uh. So it's already had a little bit of a seat at the table, but we wanted to... Honor that tradition as well and we saw really uh, that that area uh, uh, has tremendous uh, growth potential because if you look at uh, within sport communication or family communication about sport or uh, coach uh, to uh, athlete communication inter-athlete communication you know communication uh, with fans, not in a mass mediated or mediated kind of way, but you know just in maybe in customer relations or something like that um, but uh, what's uh, come about is the journal really has uh, three uh, major constituencies, and one would be uh, a set of scholars seated in communication and media studies that have uh, social and cultural um, uh, questions uh, as primary, um, both impi- both empirical and cultural critical uh, in terms of approach. Uh, but uh, we do have uh, a set of scholars that are seated primarily in sport management um, that uh, are looking at uh, public relations and strategic communication issues, effectiveness issues uh, for the organization. Um, Sometimes those uh, really uh, embrace understandings of process as well. Um, And we have a third group that really is that communication and sport group. Uh, uh, Sounds funny to say it, but we really almost have to use the word non-mediated as a modifier before that group to explain that, well, this is communication sport that isn't the media sport that you're probably thinking about, but we think, also should be in that tent and uh, there are more and more scholars and if you think about really uh, 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 scholars in the sociology of sport and and in coaching or sport and education have been looking at those communicative paths and effectiveness strategies and motivation I guess you could say uh, applied sports psychology really is about that ultimately about how to best communicate effectively to an athlete to garner uh, optimal performance you know, so you can backtrack and look at many of the things that have been done routinely uh, uh, in other settings as as sport communication, but it isn't something that people seated in uh, communication studies, communication sciences have routinely um, uh, looked at. The, the, those kinds of applied questions, uh, those kinds of processes questions, um, really heretofore have been uh, in departments that used to be called physical education they're no longer called physical education because that's a, a, not a term that uh, many think reflect well on the discipline so they call it kinesiology exercise and sports science human movement studies uh, that kind of thing now uh, but uh, it's basically PE and there should be no shame in PE actually it's uh, you know, many people have observed it's really uh, at an undergraduate level. It's basically a pre-medical education. Hmm.
0: Are you getting much interest from I suppose scholars sitting in the, the I suppose broader humanities and social sciences.
1: Yeah, we're we're getting uh, things uh, from uh, 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 yeah policy departments and. Uh, uh, you know, politics departments, and sometimes language or area studies departments, where they're looking at, uh, you know, sport in a certain part of the world. Uh, you know, somebody in, a, oh, like a, you know, Brazilian studies, or you know, yeah. So we get we, we're beginning to pick that up, and uh, uh, and I'm really glad to see that. Uh, I wanted to start the enterprise uh, because I wanted to see uh, a journal in this space uh, get off strongly. Uh, There's always a lot of risk uh, when you have sport in any scholarly academic equation, because one part of those interested parties are still people that are there because they're enthusiastic about sport. And uh, just like I explained with my moving to uh, media as an academic enterprise as opposed to entering the media business, uh, I think uh, uh, one of the responsibilities of being a a sports scholar uh, in the academic enterprise is to be the loyal opposition. Mm. Because in a way, all of us want sport to be A better place, a good social space Um, and to just come in with blinders on and say well boy this is terrific and everybody loves it not everybody loves it you know only about 25% of people really self-declare as a sport fan and only about 10% of women but we make the assumption and we hear the broad allegation very often that everybody loves you know FIFA football, not everybody you know you count them It's not everybody. There's more people that could care less than care. Mm -hmm. But you won't see that reflected in the media space. It's everybody in the story that's being told back to us about sport. So, you know, part of the deal about being a scholar is being able to discern the truth and to speak truth to the situation. And it doesn't mean that you have to bash sports, but it It means that, you know, even if it's an absolutely terrific place, and, you know, I think same thing for media critics, you know. uh, You can like a lot of what's going on in media. Much of what's going on in media uh, is terrific, but it could be a heck of a lot better. Mm. And sport has a very, very long way to go because it's been such a privileged space, such an unbalanced space with regard to gender, with regard to race, with regard to uh, sexual orientation, you know, it's, it was basically started as an organized activity as a masculinity reinforcement uh, uh, socialization tool. You know, it's going to take a while to move it beyond that as a social uh, functioning uh, process. Mm. And uh, I don't know, uh, most of us on end of the day would rather live in a more just world, a more fair world, rather than the one that wasn't. So I don't see any harm in uh, the scholarly community moving that along a little bit in terms of cultural sensibility.
0: I fully endorse that comment. <laughs> and, uh, probably a very nice note to finish on actually. Yeah. So, Larry, thanks for your time, I genuinely appreciate yeah. it. Thank
1: you my my pleasure